2: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and starship sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number one hundred and forty two. I am your slightly hoarse host, Nicholas Eaton Clark. Submissions month is winding down here at the Triple F with one week left before the deadline. We've received quite a bit of great fantasy fiction, and if you have a story to share, you should do so soon. The details are on our submissions page at farfetchedfables.com. As of now, we are a paying market for fiction, thanks mostly to donations from you, dear listeners. We're chipping away at our next goal, which is to pay narrators for their hard work as well. With that in mind, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders patron page. Every little bit helps to make the district bigger and better. And now, on with the show. This week we bring you Descanso Dream, A Tale of the Rose Knights, by Jay Lake and Ruth Nestfold, originally published at dailysciencefiction.com. It's the twelfth in the series, bringing this bouquet of flash stories to an even dozen. Jay lived in Portland, Oregon until his death in 2014, shortly before his 50th birthday. His books include Kalimpura from Tor and Love in the Time of Metal and Flesh from Prime. Jay was a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. In 2015, he posthumously received the Locus Award for his collection, Last Plane to Heaven. Ruth has published widely in science fiction and fantasy in such markets as Asimov's and Fantasy and Science Fiction. Her work has been nominated for the Nebula, Tiptree and Sturgeon Awards and in 2007, the Italian translation of her novella Looking Through Lace won the Premio Italia Award for Best International Work. Their collection of short stories, Almost all the way home from the stars is available at Amazon and via iTunes. The story is read for us by Jeffrey Welchman, who wrote, produced, and voiced The Reigning Lunatic Podcast, a medieval sitcom and twenty sixteen Parsec Awards finalist. He lives in Baltimore in Maryland. You can find him online at Jeffreywelchman.com. And now Descanso Dream
1: Descanso is the smallest of the Rose Knights, and perhaps the strangest. He is a dream made flesh, a pale man with skin the white of the ocean's dead, riding a horse of fog and silk. His banners trail behind him like a wind from the Orient. His smile gleams of starlight and the gentle thoughts of a loving woman. His home lies amid a thorny thicket of rose canes, a flowered wall run riot around a pale-turreted fairy-tale castle. There are a hundred beds within his home, and a hundred maidens sleep there, each for a hundred years. They are Descanso's power, Descanso's fire, Descanso's beating heart, innocence captured on the knife-point of revelation. THE HAPPY FANTASIES OF A HUNDRED FATHERS THAT THEIR DAUGHTERS REMAIN FOREVER VIRGIN. HE IS BOTH THEIR VIRGINITY AND THEIR TEMPTATION, ROLLING THROUGH THE NIGHT OF THEIR LIVES AS AN AVALANCHE TRAVELS ALPINE VALLEYS. DESCANSO FIGHTS NO GREAT WARS. HE IS A MAN OF SORTS, WITH A MAN'S ROUGH, LOVING HEART AND FLESHY SWORD TO MATCH, BUT HE IS SO SMALL THAT HIS BATTLES ARE ALL OF STEALTH, and misdirection. How else could he stand on the fields of honor against the great buffoons who wield Jacobean broadswords as if to cleave the bones of dragons? So honor in the classic knightly sense does not become him, though Descanso has honor of his own. His battles are of the heart, rehearsed within the red-beating forests of his hundred sleeping maidens, fought for real in the bedchambers and taverns of the wider world. Descanso dream, the white knight, is the knight of love, and he has become trapped within his own snares. Descanso had chanced to meet the angel's daughter while about his travels. She was as beautiful as her story, and more, filled with charm and grace and power that could give any man pause. Words passed between them more than, perhaps, should have. Time was spent, and though he sheltered a hundred maidens in his tower, and she lived her pleasing life with the spice-merchant in point of sleep, the knight of love was hoisted on his own petard alongside his newly beloved. There is one power left to them, Descanso Dream and the angel's daughter. They are both creatures of story— and story is nothing but dream-given words. So they can do this thing. They can dream themselves together, write a different story, free the maidens, and take flight under the dark of moon on the horse of fog and silk.
0: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
3: Our feature story for the week is A Bend in the Road by Robert Dawson. Robert teaches mathematics at a Nova Scotian University. When not teaching or doing research, he writes, fences, cycles, and volunteers with a scout troop. His fiction has appeared in Nature, Futures, A.E., compelling science fiction and numerous other periodicals and anthologies. He is an alumnus of the University of Cambridge, Sage Hill, and Viable Paradise. His story is read by Anthony Babington, a voice in the Internet's head, who looks almost but not quite exactly how you expect him to. Having escaped from the sinister forces of Texas, he has retreated to an ingeniously disguised bunker in a secure, undisclosed location in Burnsville, Minnesota. His life goal is to someday annoy Norm Sherman into letting him voice a part on Escape Pod, but until then, he'd be happy to voice a project for you. Yes, you in the checked shirt. You can contact him on Google+, Plus or on Twitter, at Aleph Baker. And now, a bend in the road.
4: Kevin MacDonald had helped his foster fathers hand out Halloween candy to the trick-or-treaters. He'd finished his homework, and now he was taking a quick look at Facebook before bed, just to be safe. He stood out of his classmates' way, and usually they stood out of his. But it was safer to know what was going on. There, on Gerald Lyman's page, was his own photograph. Why would Gerald, or anybody, post his picture? Then he read the name under it, and he realized that his days as Kevin MacDonald were over. The name on the page was not the name that he had been scrawling on his homework for the last two years. Not the Kevin that Papa Jim and Papa Michael said goodbye to every morning when he went to catch the school bus and greeted with cookies and chocolate milk when he came home again, nor the Kevin S. MacDonald on his school ID card. In blatant boldface for the whole world to read, there was the name that his parents had given him sixteen years ago the name that the police had carefully erased from existence. Was it even legal for Jared to put that name online? It didn't matter. It was there now, and there was no use begging him to take it down. Tomorrow in school, Kevin MacDonald would be a discarded Halloween costume. The ghosts of the dead past would walk again. One thing he had learned in his previous foster home, you did what you had to do. Five minutes later he was cramming clothes into his backpack, clothes warm enough for the chilly November nights. He put his iPod and flashlight in the pockets of his windbreaker, and put on his father's digital watch. He knelt beside the bed, worked his arm under the mattress, and fished out six dollars bills and one fifty. He counted, all there, and put them in his wallet and packed that. He shoved in a battered paperback thriller that he hadn't finished. The red Swiss army knife with the white shield worn away that had been his father's, and the battered little New Testament with his mother's maiden name on the flyleaf. Most of what he owned was in a storage locker in Halifax. Things too bulky to bring to a foster home, toys he'd grown out of, and family mementos that could betray him. He paused in the upstairs hall. Downstairs a muffled voice shouted, Fire in the hole! and something exploded his foster fathers were watching Mythbusters. He tiptoed down the stairs and into the dim kitchen, where he paused to take a bag of leftover Halloween candy, a box of crackers, and a half-full jar of peanut butter. Should he leave a note for them? They'd been good to him, and they would worry, Papa Jim in particular. But when they read it, they would phone the Mounties immediately, and he couldn't risk that. You did what you had to do, and Kevin MacDonald did nothing left to say. Using his hand to muffle the cowbell that hung on the back door, he led himself out into the darkness. He skirted the house and turned left along the road. The weathered asphalt was faintly gray in the starlight. It had rained that morning. A few puddles stood shiny and black, and the air was rich with the scent of fallen leaves and dead, damp bracken. The road was empty. The trick-or-treaters had all gone home to gloat over their loot. A sick coldness twisted in his stomach. Papa Jim and Papa Michael's house had been the first place where he'd been happy since the accident. Life was going to be a lot lonelier, but it was Kevin who had lived there, and that part of his life was over. Ten minutes later, he reached the turnoff where the two-rut logging road began. By the paved roads, it was about thirty kilometers to Antigonish and the bus station. But the logging road got there in ten kilometers, and it was easy going. He could be there by morning, and be safely aboard the bus to Halifax before anybody reported him missing. Where then? Montreal? Could he survive there on what he'd learned in French class? Bonjour, où est mon stylo? Maybe Toronto would be a better choice. A crude single-bar gate, welded from two-inch iron pipe, blocked the end of the logging road. To the left of the gate, a dark mess of ruts showed where all-terrain vehicles had made their way around it. Beyond, the road opened like a pitch-black cavern among the trees. He hesitated for an instant. There were stories about this road. When he'd walked it, it had been in the daytime with Papa Michael. Walking it alone at night was different. But he took off his backpack, found his flashlight, and turned it on. His vision shrank to a soft-edged patch of light, barely as wide as the road. Beyond was absolute blackness. He crouched, ducked under the gate, shouldered his pack, and began to walk. After what felt like many kilometers, the flashlight began to dim. It was old, bought for a quarter in a yard sale, rusty steel and a battery-hungry incandescent bulb. When had he last put in new batteries? Several camping trips ago. Many pages read under the covers after light's out. How long did batteries last once they started to fade? Objects outside the dim pool of light were becoming visible. Shapeless gray shadows. His eyes were adapting to the dark that was slowly closing around him. But not enough. He was stumbling over rocks and fallen branches, stepping into puddles. He heard something. A squirrel? Run across the road just ahead of him but saw nothing. The filament of the flashlight bulb was a tiny orange ember now. He turned it off. It was no help to him like this, and maybe the batteries would recover a little with a rest. He looked up, searching for the faint V of light in the sky where the treetops parted above the narrow road. It was marked only by a few stars, but he found it and began to walk again, using it for guidance. Somewhere in the night a coyote howled. People had been killed by coyotes, but he felt safer out here than facing the kids and teachers tomorrow. A branch clawed at his face, his eyes closed instinctively. He put his hand up to his cheek. The scratch stung when he touched it, and blood was sticky under his fingertips. He could not go on like this. He would have to find somewhere to sleep, and start walking again at daybreak. He could still be an Antigonish when the bus station opened. Or if he did miss the once-daily bus, he could hitchhike. It was illegal, but it would be cheaper. Wind shivered the leaves around him. It was going to be a bitterly cold night, unless he could find shelter. Had he passed that corner with the abandoned car yet? Even in the deceptive dark, there was no way in which he could have missed it. The car was a landmark on the trail. An ancient Volkswagen Beetle that had once been light blue, and was now half rust and half thick green moss, Its position, on the slope below the bend and facing upwards, suggested that it hadn't gone off the road in an accident, but been dumped there to save landfill fees. Kids told stories about it at campfires, adding lurid details like the skeleton in the trunk. But there were big holes rusted in the hood. It was one of the old V-dubs with the engine in back and the cargo space in front, and he had looked once, just to see what was there. There was no skeleton, just a spare tire, a rusting jack, "'and what looked like a moldy old tow-rope half-buried in rotting leaves and spruce needles. "'It wouldn't be comfortable inside the car, "'but it would be better than sleeping on the wet ground in the cold wind. "'Ahead of him, a wall of darkness rose and swallowed the stars. "'Under his feet, the rut curved to the right. "'He must be at the corner. "'Reluctantly, he went forward, leaving the road, "'grasping saplings to steady himself as he inched down the treacherous slope.' The blackness was almost absolute, but he had the sense of something ahead of him. A moment later he banged his shin, not hard, on the old-fashioned chrome tube bumper. Warily, trying to avoid slashing his fingers on sharp rusted metal or broken glass, he felt his way around to the right. The driver's side door was blocked by a tree that had grown against the car. Branches pressed against the door and grew in through the glassless window. No way he was getting in that way. He worked his way back around to the other side of the car. The passenger door was clear, and opened easily except for the slope. He tried to release the seat back so that he could get into the back and lie down, but the rusted lever broke off in his hand. Shotgun... The air inside smelled of mildew, but he climbed into the passenger seat, closed the door, and tried to sleep. Just as he was dozing off, he sensed something moving near him, inside the car. Porcupine, maybe, or a raccoon. Too big for a squirrel. Better get outside first, then find a stick and chase it away. Porcupine quills could give you a nasty infected wound, they said. And raccoons carried rabies. Fighting either one in a confined space would be crazy. Where was the handle? There had to be one. Trying not to panic, he felt all over the inside of the door. That crank must be for the window. He could climb out that way if he had to. Hello, said a girl's voice from the blackness to his left. Who are you, and what are you doing in my car? He tried to scream, found his lungs were empty, and drew his breath in with a harsh croak. He tried to think what to say. I didn't know it was your car, and I didn't know you were here, and I'm sorry. He was babbling. Time to be quiet. His heart was pounding, his face was sweaty, his mouth was dry, and his jeans... Had he? He brushed his hand across the wet denim, already cooling in the cold night air. Oh, Jesus, what was she going to think? He hoped desperately that she wouldn't notice the harsh, fresh pea smell. His cheeks were burning. Who are you? There was just a little more edge to her voice. The comfortable lie of Kevin MacDonald was gone. I'm. I'm Andrew. Andrew Bly. It was the first time in two years that he'd used that name. It felt strange on his tongue. I'm Sharon Henderson. You can stay if you like, Andrew. Uh, thanks. He was silent for a long time. How did you get in? You weren't here when I got in, were you? I'm always here. People don't always see me, though. Andrew looked toward the driver's seat. A dim figure sat there, twilight gray. How was he seeing her? There was no light. Some kids would be panicking now, he thought. Maybe I did fall asleep and I'm dreaming this. He pinched himself. She was still there. Medium height and skinny, hair down below her shoulders. She wore a straight, thigh-length dress. She sat sideways on the seat, with her bare legs tucked under her. If there were branches there, they didn't seem to bother her. How come? He asked. It was less dorky than, Hey, are you a ghost or something? And the answer might be easier to deal with. It's a long story. A pause. It's not a very nice one. Are you sure you want to hear it? If you're okay telling it. Can't do much harm now. See, I got this car for my 16th birthday, in 68. I guess that's a long while back now. "'So, she was a ghost. "'He was supposed to be frightened, right? "'But her solemn eyes and slightly hesitant voice "'weren't frightening at all. "'Okay. "'Dad thought he ought to get me one, "'and we checked out a whole bunch. "'His beetle was the best he could afford, "'but it still kept breaking down. "'I got pretty good at fixing it, "'but some things needed more than just the tools "'we had around the house. "'And that's how I started hanging out with Johnny Cotterill.' Johnny knew a whole lot about cars and motorbikes, had all the tools, and he didn't mind helping me. After a while, we started dating, then going steady. He was in grade 12, and he had a big, shiny Harley. I thought he was the coolest guy ever. He wore a Rolling Stones t-shirt with a pack of cigarettes tucked into the sleeve. He greased his hair back, and when my folks met him, they hated him on sight. I didn't care. I was crazy in love with him by then. A bunch of the other girls were jealous. That felt good, too. I'd always been the class wallflower. Of course, they didn't know that I usually had to pay for our dates. Johnny was as cheap as they get, and he was always trying to grope me, get into my pants, and I didn't want to go that far. We'd go out to the drive-in, and I'd be so busy trying to keep his hands off me that I'd miss half the movie, and he'd call me a cock-teasing bitch. What a jerk. His throat felt tight, and he was trembling. I started to wonder if maybe he was right, and if I should be nicer to him. Even got a book out of the library to find out about the pill, stuff they don't tell us in health class, though I don't suppose Dr. Kelly would have given me a prescription anyhow. Then one day Johnny wasn't at school, and the kids were saying he'd been arrested. I thought maybe he'd been riding his motorbike too fast or something. But then I got home and Mom told me it was for raping a 13-year-old girl. She was all, I told you so, about it, of course. It was a moment before Andrew could trust his voice. What an asshole! Him, I mean. I didn't even believe it. I thought the kid was just making it up because she was jealous of us. Pretty dumb, eh? Anyhow, the judge sent him to Spring Hill for ten years, and I still thought he was innocent. I was going to wait for him, you know? Stay faithful till he got parole? Don't laugh. I was serious. I wrote to him every week, but he never wrote back. So one day, after school ended, I decided to drive up and visit him. I phoned from a phone booth to make the arrangements so Mom and Dad wouldn't find out from the phone bill. Why didn't you use this cell phone? Huh? Prisoners don't get phones in their cells. Anyhow, as soon as Mom and Dad left for work... I got in my car and drove to Spring Hill, two hours away. When I got there, a lady guard took me into a little room and frisked me for drugs or weapons or whatever. Then she showed me into a bigger room with a big glass wall down the middle. Prisoners sat on one side, visitors on the other, and you talked through a grill. A guard brought Johnny in and sat him down facing me. It felt grown up and exciting, like something out of a movie. Well, first I just said hello, and he said hello back. And I told him I loved him, and he didn't say anything. Just looked at me. I know you didn't do it, I told him. Stupid little bitch was asking for it, was all he said. Then he stood up and walked out of the room, and the guards were trying to catch up with him. I got out of there somehow and drove back home, too stunned to cry. It was still mid-afternoon when I got there, nobody home. So I got a garden hose, cut off about 15 feet, duct-taped it to the exhaust pipe, ran it in the window, and started the engine. You've heard about people doing that? Yeah. Well, it works. What the hell were you meant to say to that? I'm sorry it worked for a lot of things, but this didn't feel like one of them. Andrew stayed silent. But it's still a pretty stupid thing to do don't ever try it, okay? Anyway, the day after the funeral, Dad put the garden hose into the trunk of my car. Then he drove it out here, put it in neutral, rolled it down the bank, and walked home without saying a word. And that's why you're stuck here? I don't think I'm stuck here, exactly. There just isn't anywhere else to go. How come? It's just easier to stay here. You can't stay out here forever. Why not? Anyhow, that's my story. What's yours? You don't want to hear it. Hey, I told you mine. Lay it on me. Okay, Sharon. When I was eleven, my folks were killed in a car accident. Heavy. I think my dad had been drinking. He did that a lot. Anyhow, I got sent to a foster home run by a woman called Miss Winters. She wanted us to call her Nicky, but she was Miss Winters. There was me and two girls, Bethany and Ashley. They were a bit younger than I was, and Miss Winters... He paused. The wind rustled the trees. Go on. She used to, you know, do stuff to us. You mean she hit you? No. Worse stuff. You know. Oh, gross! She told us that if we didn't do what we were told, she could have us put in jail. Bullshit! Pardon my French, Andrew, but she just couldn't do that. No way, Jose. We were just kids. We didn't know. We did what we thought we had to do. So what happened? One day, Bethany told a friend at school, and the friend told the teacher, and the police arrested Miss Winters. They came for us at school and took us away and put us into short-term care. Good. Yeah, only she didn't plead guilty. At the trial, we had to tell the judge about all the things she'd made us do. And it was on the Internet and TV and everything. Uh, Andrew? Yeah? You're going to think I'm a total retard, but what's the internet? It's just, uh, the internet. It joins up people's computers. People use it for games and email and social media and stuff. What social... Oh, never mind. Things have changed while I've been out here in the woods, right? Yeah, I guess. The court said nobody was allowed to mention our names, but... A bunch of bloggers down in the States figured it was a big free speech issue and told the whole story, names and all. I guess the laws are different there. What's a blogger? Uh, Never mind. Just another thing this 60s chick isn't going to get. She was more visible now, though everything around her was still dark. He could see her pink nail varnish, her tanned face, her brown bead necklace, the magenta flowers on her yellow dress. A blog's... Sort of like a public diary, only on the internet so everyone can see it, even people up here in Canada. Anyhow, some of the bloggers were saying I should go to jail too, or someone should kill me. One of them said he'd come and do it himself if he had a passport. That's crazy! You were one of the victims! Well, yeah, but Miss Winters used to call me her porn star, her, her stud. She used to make me do things to the girls while she watched and made videos. She really got off on that. And when that came out in the news, people said I was just as bad as she was. That's gross. And it's not fair. It wasn't your fault. I could have run away or something, and I didn't. Or I could have told somebody myself. Anyhow, because of what came out after the trial, they gave us all new identities. I spent a week working with a Mountie called Corporal LaFontaine, learning my story. I don't know where Ashley and Bethany live now, or what their new names are. That's part of the deal. Corporal LaFontaine said the girls don't want to ever see me again. He paused. I don't blame them. I wouldn't either. I suppose not, but that doesn't make it your fault. Anyhow, one of the kids at school, Gerald Lyman... Yesterday he figured out who I used to be. Who I am. And he's put it on his Facebook page so everybody can know how clever he is. Facebook? It's a social media site. Kids use it a lot. Everybody's going to see it soon, and they'll know all about what happened. So that's why you're here? Where are you going? I don't know. Can't you get a new identity? Corporal LaFontaine told me to take care of this one, it'd be the only one I'd get. And it didn't work very well. And I'm getting tired of running away. But that's just what you're doing, isn't it? I guess. It wasn't quite the same sort of running, but it was hard to explain. Maybe it wasn't that different after all. Hey, I've got a really cool idea. How about we run away properly? What do you mean? Ever read Peter Pan? I saw the movie. Remember how he said dying would be a really big adventure? She bit her lower lip. Well, up to now, it's kind of sucked. Yeah, I can see that. Want to find out where the action's really at? How? We got wheels. Let's split this popsicle stand. Find that adventure, okay? She produced a silver car key, attached to a tiny troll doll with bright green hair. It was tempting. No more hiding. Free forever from the shadow of Miss Winters. What would a dead battery, an empty gas tank, and a rusted-out engine do when a dead girl set them in motion? And where would they go? He was fairly sure it wouldn't be New York. Or Toronto. Hey, could we go look for my parents? She laughed. Sure we can. She put the key into the ignition. Ready to go? He wanted to, so badly that he could taste it. But Mom and Dad were dead. And that would mean... Sharon? Yeah? You're going to think I'm a total wuss. But I don't think I'm ready to go there. You sure? It'd be real cool to have someone to talk to on the trip. I'm going anyhow. I've... I think maybe I'd better just go back and live it down. It's going to be really tough, I know. But I guess Papa Michael and Papa Jim probably got told when I went to live with them. As for the others, it can't be worse than what I've been through already. It just can't. I'll do what I have to do, and I'll get by. There was a long silence. Okay, Andrew, she said. If you're sure that's what you want, do your own thing. She leaned towards him, put one balloon-light arm around his shoulders, and left a moth kiss on his cheek. Better get out now if you're going. See you around sometime. Take care, eh? Bye. Good luck. He opened the door, clambered out, and closed it behind him. Feeling his way back with his hands, he scrambled up the uneven bank towards the road. Behind him came the cough of a starter motor, then the rumble of a revving engine. Stones rattled under tires. There was a sensation of something large rushing past, a rattle of wind-shaken leaves. Then silence. A waning moon hung low over the woods road, lighting his way back to the highway. He looked over the edge of the bank. By the silver light, he could see an empty space in the weeds, where the cards stood for so long. Bye, Sharon, he said, his voice hardly above a whisper. I hope you get wherever you're going safely. Maybe I'll see you sometime, but not yet. He turned and started homeward.
3: And that's all for this week, dear listeners. Please remember that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. Which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will become trapped in their own snares. I'm off to go and make myself some more ginger and honey tea. And I'll see you all next week, dear listeners. Bye now.
1: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.